0: But hey, we, hey, we are rocking the interviews lately. So we have, a, we have yet another interview today. For those of us hearing this later, if I listen back, it will seem as though it's been two weeks since you inter- we interviewed anyone, because it will have been.
1: It's been um, less than one week.
0: But we've been, we've been interviewing a lot of people in a short period of time, because Carol will be gone in Finland for a while. And because there are just so many people we want to talk to.
1: And now seems to be a good time to catch them all, oddly enough, given end of semester
0: crunch. It does. It does. So I should give a little context or we should chat a little bit about today's interviewee because he's not our typical guest.
1: I guess you could say he's not our typical guest. But you could also say that given your interests and my interests, he's totally in line with things that we enjoy. And I think that we want to study in far more detail as our careers... Move ahead.
0: That's true. Well, and we wanna we wanna give breadth. We don't wanna just talk to human biologists and anthropologists because none of us just cite and just draw from other anthropologists and human biologists. And I just started a paper, in fact, on Samoan tattooing and cited today's guest right out of the gate. So let me introduce him. He's not on yet, but we wanted to talk a little bit about this. So Rob Ruck, who is a professor of history. At the University of Pittsburgh. And what's he study, Kara?
1: He studies the history of sports, kind of a historical as well as cultural approach
0: to it. So a cultural historian and a sports historian. So he's got several books. In fact, the one that we're going to talk to him today is called Tropic of Football, The Long and Perilous Journey of Samoans to the NFL. He also has the Tropic of Baseball, Baseball in the Dominican Republic, as well as Raceball. R. A. C. E. How the Major Leagues Colonized the Black and Latin Game, Sandlot Season, Sport in Black Pittsburgh. So, in terms of the the issues around the social construction and the biological implications of race and health disparities and things like that that human biologists tend to talk about, his work is really, really spot on. Um, I wanted to interview him because, as as you said, it's a little self-serving. <laughs> His book is brand new, The Tropic of Football, it just came out this year, and I work in American Samoa, and you have been collaborating with Michaela on a study potentially about Fautasi racing, so mm-hmm. sport in American Samoa, which I can tell you from firsthand experience is a big, big deal, right? So Samoans take their sporting way, way seriously.
1: Yeah, I feel like this is something that, again, the self-serving aspect of it, I am becoming more and more interested at the intersection of the biological and cultural when it comes to sports. And yeah, I think it comes from my own athletic, I can't say prowess, because it's definitely not prowess, (laughs) but from my own athletic experiences and watching others, I mean, the biological effects and the cultural effects that sports have on people, it's So deep, it runs so deep that I love being able to bring on someone like this because our podcast is so varied.
0: Well, yeah, and and personally, we we come to our research interests first and foremost through our personal interests. And you're a power lifter, and you've done research with hockey teams. So much fun! And I'm at the University of Alabama, and we have the country's best football team for a decade running. And it's gotten me into football, I'll say. I wasn't into football until I came to the University of Alabama, and I roll tide now like the rest of them. And I pay a lot of attention. I read about football and watch football all the time. I dove into football like I dive into my research topics. So it's really cool to me to see someone whose work intersects with mine with regard to football, and I should note, because – This will be dated when it comes out, but there was just a really nice ESPN cover piece on their magazine by Wright Thompson, who wrote about our quarterback. So our current quarterback, tuatonga Vailoa, is Samoan by way of Hawaii, and everyone here has been making a big deal about how Hawaiian he is and wearing flower leis at games and playing Hawaiian music, and I keep screaming. But he's Samoan, (laughs) and he's not the first quarterback to gain national attention who is Samoan by way of Hawaii. Uh, So Marcus Mariota, won the Heisman, a few years ago, he was at University of Oregon, now plays for the Tennessee Titans, and he actually went to high school at St. Louis High School with Fuatonga Vailoa. So there's some connections there. So the book that we're going to talk to Rob about, goes way deeper and it touches one on a lot of stuff that i have noted myself working in american samoa and two what i wanted to get out there was this past summer when i was doing research in seattle on tattooing among the samoan diaspora i met coach ava um in fact ava ava's lava lavas is a company that makes lava lavas on the west coast and they make sports Lava lavas, and I I went to buy lava lavas when we were there, which is the wraparound sarong. For those listening who don't know, yeah. you have to wear those when you go do Samoan things. So when we went to a traditional hand tap to watch, you have to wear a lava lava to go in. It's part of the culture, part of the ritual. And he had a bunch of football or sport, USC and and Oregon lava lavas, and I'm like. Yo, you need a Crimson Tide. And he's like, Well, we are going to be making Crimson Tide for some friends of ours. And I'm like, Who are those friends? And he said, Oh, yeah. the Tonga Vailoa family. And I'm like, oh my, God, oh my God. And I got all excited. Um, so it turns out that Tui was a football player. I don't know if he played at St. Louis or University of Hawaii, but knows Tua, his father, his coach Ava, who coached Mariota and Tua Tonga Vailoa, got a tattoo, was in our study. So for me, it's just like a crisscross, really exciting, geeking out on football, on my research, on what's going on in the culture at large. And it gives us an opportunity to discuss why Samoans and Polynesians are so prominent in American football, despite coming from a teeny tiny little old country.
1: No, this is great stuff. And yeah, that's one of these things is you don't often see such, I guess you can call it an overwhelming dominance in many ways, because it's such a small country, and the percentage of Samoan players in the NFL, it's a huge percentage. <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy.
0: I was really surprised, and I don't know if we'll get a chance to say all of this while we talk to him, so, but out there, having come to football later, mm-hmm. I grew up in Indianapolis, so the Colts were there, but I didn't pay any attention to them. My best friend growing up was a big Giants and Colts fan, and was always like, why aren't you watching the Giants play the Colts? And I was like, huh? Oh, wait, here we go. (laughs) Hello. Hey there. So I'm Chris. This is Kara. You probably figured that out. We were just giving some personal background on why we are interviewing you for a podcast that mostly targets human biologists. And I wanted to share a little bit of the personal stuff that has me so jazzed about this book being from the University of Alabama and working in American Samoa. So we were just laying a little bit of that so we didn't bog down the interview. So we wonder what your sort of academic origin story is in that regard. How did you get interested in culture and sports and and cultural history and decide to pursue it uh, research-wise and as a career?
2: I'm a child of the 60s in many ways and spent the late 60s in and out of school and in and out of courtrooms um, before graduating in the early 70s. And after a few years of political activity, when it became clear that uh, socialism was not on the agenda, I drifted into grad school at the University of Pittsburgh, where I was living and where I had been arrested and on trial uh, during the Vietnam War. And I was studying labor and radical history. Uh, The first book I did was a co-authored book with Jim Barrett about Steve Nelson. A prominent American communist leader who had been the political commissar of the Abraham Lincoln Brigade during the Spanish Civil War, central committee member of the party, and a Smith Act defendant. I was going to do my dissertation on the rise and fall of the Union and Steel. That began to look like an extended obituary Hmm. by the late 70s because the mills were starting to go down. And I was running one day with a good buddy. who had grown up in Hermony No. 2, a little coal mining patch east of Pittsburgh where the African-American miners lived, who had played football at the University of Illinois, but like most black athletes, had not graduated. And on this run, we could look across the Monongahela River to the Homestead Steelworks. And Norris started mentioning that there was a ball club associated with that team called the Homestead Grays, We hardly knew anything about them. Norris had heard stories from the older black fellows in the community about cool Papa Bell and Josh Gibson, been admonished to grow up to be a Jackie Robinson. And we went to the library, and there really was not much done. That led to a project, um, which became the first book I did on sport in my dissertation called Sandlot Seasons, about the old Negro League and Sandlot Clubs in Pittsburgh. Uh, Norris would graduate Pitt, go on to law school, become a judge for a number of years. But I stuck with sport. And I was interested in, not so much the outcome of the game, but what sport meant to people and how that meaning had changed over time. And I found it was a wonderful way to interact with students and the community because I could talk about things, race, class, gender, colonialism via sport that was much less threatening Hmm. and an arena in which they have this assumption that it's a level playing field and that it is a meritocracy. And in subsequent years, uh, work on the Negro Leagues took me down to the Caribbean because many of the black ball players played there every winter and many of the Caribbean ball players played in the Negro Leagues and the Major Leagues in the summer. Ended up doing a number of books and films, culminating in a co-authored book called Rooney, a sporting life about Art Rooney, the patriarch of the Steelers, whose life really personified the evolution of 20th century sport. And the other was the book called Race Ball, how the Major Leagues Colonized the Black and Latin Game, that brought together the work I had done on Black America and the Caribbean. And after that, I didn't have a project to work on. And that's what set me up for uh, American Samoa.
1: Hmm. How did you go from baseball, 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 which, you know, is a lot of your previous work. Where did kind of that link with football? Because you do mention a number of other sports that are quite popular in American Samoa. Uh, What led to your focus on football? Well,
2: football was part of Sandlot Seasons in that um, it also included the Black Sandlot Clubs. And when I wrote Rooney, it was much more about football and boxing and rackets and the church and politics in Ireland uh, than it was about baseball. But I think what really fascinated me was athletic excellence. Why do some communities produce disproportionate numbers of talented athletes? what I like to call a microculture of sporting excellence and Troy Polamalu, um was at the peak of his game at this point in the late first decade of the 20th century and personified athleticism, intellect, and a psyche that together, even though he wasn't the biggest fellow around, made him a dominant presence. And I was interested in the culture that produced him. And that led me to American Samoa.
0: So it's, well, I have a, Couple questions from that. It's hard to figure out which direction to go. I want to I want to note that the book is on uh, is published by the New Press, and one of the things that you mentioned that struck me and I was curious about, or that I I noted, is is the philosophy or the mission of New Press. It's a not for profit publisher dedicated to, for one of a better word, social justice issues. So. The first thing that struck me was, why is a book about football in this press? I know that there are lots of structural inequalities in American Samoa. I wonder if that's what's addressed in this book. So I'm really overjoyed in many ways to see so much of my experience, good and bad, in American Samoa reflected in your book. And it looks like you've done what, what would be to us fantastic ethnography. Um, generally some excellent research um, I want to ask you about how you you sort of got rolling in that and I'll, I'll ask the question this way because in your book you mentioned Penny Samaya uh, Samoan who grew up in New York and Penny in your book you related interesting story that he found out he was Samoan and read some of Margaret Mead's coming of age in Samoa to, to learn about himself it sounds like he didn't finish it Um, And I imagine he found it a bit dated and difficult to rectify with what his family in New York were like by that point. But he went on to play football for Pitt, major in anthropology, and is now the athletic director for Pitt. So I focus on him because a lot of our listeners are anthropologists. But I wonder if any relationship or friendship with him led you to read this book, or how did you make your connections with American Samoa and find yourself there?
2: Let me deal with your question about the new press and social justice first and and then talk about Penny. You know, I think sport at its best is what I would call a republic of play, a level playing field in which your performance matters, not your class or racial or religious background, where you measure your own worth by the strength of your opponents. And it's a world where we celebrate the body, the mind, and being on a team, which can be one of the greatest things about sport. But, you know, the Republic of play, like the early American Republic, can be fraught with problems. And when we look around sport today, we see youth becoming uh, commodities on a, disposable commodities on a global supply chain. The athletes we applaud are traumatized uh, physically and neurologically. And sport used to bring out the worst, not the best in us. And I see so much that's so wonderful about Samoan culture and Polynesian culture manifesting itself in sport and the performance of Polynesian athletes. And yet there's that downside, which you know all too well, of the physiological problems and the structural inequalities that people in that part of the world face. Uh, especially obesity, diabetes, and the difficulty in making a transition from the islands to the United States where by most social indices, they rank near the bottom along with uh, the indigenous peoples of the continent. And I just think sport is a way to get at those concerns, uh, to both celebrate that which... Samoans have been able to build uh, that culture of Samoa, the way of Samoa, that willingness to subordinate the individual to the team and to play with the kind of abandon that uh, only the best athletes are capable of uh, doing. And yet at the same time, not to be blind to the damage that sport inflicts upon Samoan youth who might use it to get a scholarship to the United States, but for many reasons have difficulty handling the transition or to the bifurcation in that culture between some of the best athletes in the world and some of the worst health indices when it comes to obesity, lifespan, lifestyle diseases, and the like. And I think that's probably what attracted the new press to this sort of a book. Uh, as for Penny Penny would probably want me to correct he's not the athletic director but an associate athletic director Um, (laughs) but he's probably one of the highest ranking Polynesians in any athletic program in the United States Penny Penny had never been to American Samoa even though he still has family there until I think it was my third trip and he came with me but I went to take part in a football camp which Troy Palomalu and his wife Theodora Palomalu had organized. Penny is involved with life skills at Pitt with the athletes, close to 500 NCAA student athletes. And he did a session at the stadium the first morning with hundreds of Polynesian boys playing football as well as the 60 or so NFL college players, coaches, who were a part of this camp. Football, I think, is the tightest fraternity in sport. Polynesians, the tightest of those tight fraternities. By the evening of the first night, Penny was the epicenter of that group. And men who had played football, made millions, lost millions, were in crisis, were coming to him for counseling. Mm-hmm. And that sort of magnetic personality. Um, before I went the first time Penny provided me with an introduction to his uncle who had coached down there but was now in North Dakota that connection opened the door for me when I went there and as you know it's that kind of face-to-face personal society (laughs) the island of Tutuila is 19 miles long 4 or 5 miles wide a volcanic uplift that shoots out of the sea. And once you're introduced and vouched for, the door is open. And to me, in many ways, Penny personifies uh, that celebratory aspect. Somebody um, grew up in many ways, Faa Samoa, in a Samoan household, but in a community with hardly any other Polynesians, but used sport to get a scholarship and a degree and I think do far more good for society subsequent to playing football than most people do that play football professionally. Hmm.
0: I I laughed there if anyone heard me because your comment that their face-to-face culture resonates so strongly. I'm friends on Facebook with dozens and have email connections with many many of my friends and informants there but having a dialogue via the internet i might as well be sending a letter by carrier pigeon there's almost never a reply Uh, and yet when we land (laughs) in pongo and folks are, are there waiting for you right they didn't reply but they're there waiting for you with your flower lei and Everyone hangs out in the airport, by the way, so there's, there's, there's a huge crowd. It's, it's where all the high schoolers pile out on the weekend and in the evening to wait for the planes to roll in. It's as though you never left, and it's extremely warm, and your book does a wonderful job framing that, that closeness, uh, the Fa Samoa, and also the issues around the required payments for any any village ritual. So funerals, birthdays, everything, the matai, the chiefs, often ask for everyone to kick in. And because of the transition that's happened with globalization, it's gone from being goods that were made and from resources available on island to cash and things that have to be collected from family, widely distributed. When Kara and I were introducing, I failed to sort of frame it in, in the way I'd intended. So let me let me just say, some of the things I learned from your book, I have read this before, but you managed to tie it in with football so well, is the very, very short period of time that the transition into modernization has happened for Americans, so they were largely isolated with some colonial contact until World War II. And World War II introduced military, and they were a base. And so when the Navy left, many of the people who relied on the Navy also left and went to Honolulu and elsewhere, which is the Hawaii connection you write about and that we we see in these football players. But there was also one of the things that I picked up from. What you had, one of your sources was they had mines all throughout the the island. So they had stopped fishing and were reliant on processed foods and and imports, which they don't have much in the way of farmland. So they have continued to be reliant on that. And they have a 24-hour McDonald's that is the number one grossing McDonald's in the world for many years running. So those are just a few, I think, key pieces of like why things or how things changed so rapidly. Kara, do you want to jump in with a question so I don't dominate the conversation?
1: (laughs) Well, your experience with American Samoa is going to mean you're going to dominate the conversation anyway. (laughs) I actually have, oddly enough, experience with rugby. Uh, So I was a rugby player back in my, my grad school days, and so I understand the physicality and things that go along with things like rugby and football. Uh, and this is a question that you, you know we, we sent along to you ahead of time, that Polynesians in general, and Samoans in particular, have been noted for their significant size. But several times your sources indicate that size isn't what makes Samoans good at football, and I would also contend rugby. Rich Mariano, um, Miano, I'm sorry, attributed it to their musical and dancing cultural background. or Meyer, similarly dismissed a genetic basis or warrior mentality, and said they put more physical effort in. And so, kind of wondering what your thoughts were as to why Samoans are better at football, why they're so good at football, and why such a tiny island makes up such a huge percentage relatively of NFL players.
2: I mean, there certainly are a lot of uh, big Samoan Polynesian kids who turn into big. Samoan and Polynesian men, and we get to watch them on Saturdays and Sundays. But I think these explanations that it's, it's simply genetics or size miss a lot about sport. I think the physicality of life, the earlier generation of Samoans who started to appear on college teams or high schools in the 1980s and 90s, were kids who grew up walking just about everywhere they went, mm-hmm. not riding. They would climb up the hillside plantation to the hillside plantation and do chores every day. They grew up what I like to think of as Samoan strong. They walked in bare feet or in slippers, which I think um, helps develop uh, a sense of balance and the muscles of their feet and ankles. As Rich Miano pointed out, they did a lot of um, they still do traditional dance uh, at school. And I think that that physicality combined with a warrior heritage, and I know that's a loaded term for many Polynesians, but they use that repeatedly to talk about the past, but also the willingness of a Samoan kid to be hit and to hit in Mm -hmm. practice and in the game. The stoicism about pain. As Steve McGarvey, one of your colleagues, you know, said to me once, I've never seen them cop to pain. Hmm. So, you know, I think there are this psychological and cultural dimensions. Um, what amazes me is how good these players in the territory, and even before that, in Hawaii and California, around uh, military bases, whether it's naval yards in Honolulu, or the Long Beach Naval Yards, or the Marines in Camp Pendleton, or Fort Lewis, Washington, how quickly they got good, despite, particularly in the territory, not having good equipment, a, a terrible football infrastructure, coaches who learned about the game by reading about it, not from having mm-hmm. played it. You know, the, the mojo was, in a sense, Fa'as Samoa, the way of Samoa. That is, these kids grow up in a fairly hierarchical disciplined society where parents, reverends, teachers, and now coaches are the word, and you listen to them, and you don't talk back, and you don't showboat. They're willing to sacrifice for the team. And the the word I would hear to describe Troy Polamalu as the greatest compliment would be that he was humble. And this is a mindset that's perfect for football. And you add into that, as Chris pointed out, that ever since World War II, this is a society with very high engagement in the U.S. military. I mean, indeed, fierce American patriots in which almost every family has multiple members of the military. And it's a deeply religious society. So you have all of this discipline from for us, Samoa, from the military, from religion. And that's a perfect storm for football. And it makes coaches appreciate the fact that these kids will try to do what they can to get better. They will, they're at the heart of a locker room when it's a diverse locker room. And they just give their all for the team. And I think that spirit uh, has driven them from high schools in American Samoa, on the north shore of Hawaii, Honolulu, in Oceanside, and other places, to increasingly becoming by far the most overrepresented group in the National Football League and Division I football. Uh, They're still a small group. I mean, the total number of Samoans in the world is under a million, and Hmm. most of them are in independent Samoa or in their uh, migrations to New Zealand and, and Australia. I mean... In the United States, there might be 65,000 people in American Samoa, in the territory, and then another maybe 130,000 in Hawaii, California, Utah, and sprinkled elsewhere. So that's a tiny number of people. And yet, the representation um, is getting bigger and bigger, and not just in numbers. It's not just linemen. You know, Junior Seau, Troy Palomalu. Jesse Sopalu, Marcus Mariota, Tuatango Tiango-Vailoa. And I think we'll love you to see those numbers increase. And I would just add that a lot of times there's Samoan heritage in a ball player, but we don't realize that because of the name. Uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers' star second-year receiver, Juju Smith-Schuster, is of primarily Samoan origin, but.
0: Must be from Western where the Germans uh, came in first.
2: Well, that could be uh, Western and then somehow Long Beach, California. Right. Which high school with a lot of uh, Samoan and Polynesian kids.
1: So I'd like to follow up on that a little bit. And this was a question as well that we sent along in that it seems that the NFL and colleges definitely benefit from having Samoans on their team and having the mentality and the physicality from those players. And I'm wondering, does it border on exploitative, given what we know now about CTE and other life affecting injuries that football has? I mean, are the players getting out of it what they're putting in, in the long run? I mean, there's the opportunity for college education, but you know, like you said, a lot of times there's difficulty actually transitioning into that kind of life, as well as maybe not necessarily majoring in things that are super helpful. (laughs) you know, while in college because you're there to play football. Um, So I'm kind of wondering your thoughts on that. Like, you know, are they actually able to get out of it what they put in, in the long run?
2: Sure. No, that's, I think that in many ways is the question. I've been teaching athletes for a long time from all sports. And some of my favorite students of all time have been athletes. You know, an African-American girl who ran track, who's now a PhD, in education. Brandon Knight, who is a history major at Pitt and is an assistant coach and will be a head coach someday. And other kids um, who won gold medals in the Olympics and are in the NFL Hall of Fame. But they're the exceptions, um, particularly in football. And you know, I think when you talk about college sport, you have to separate the revenue sports from the non-revenue sports. So when I've got track and field and gymnasts and swimmers and volleyball players, tennis players, some of them will make some money playing sport. Most of them have no illusion nor any intention. The kids who come to play football at a time in the United States when the number of high school kids that play football and youth sport is plummeting. Mm-hmm. are increasingly from lower socioeconomic backgrounds who see football as their ticket, their alternative. Now, if the are in an education, that's tremendous. But the structure of college football is at odds with the structure of college education.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Bands placed on them, which are essentially year-round, and even though they're only supposed to practice and be involved 20 hours a week during season, if I mention that rule to my students, they just burst out laughing. <laughs> so, you know, I think you're right. There is certainly a heavy dose of exploitation of college athletes, particularly football players, of kids who, I mean, remember they have 85 scholarships on a Division I team, about 30 more than roster spots in the NFL. A lot of those kids are there to practice. They're not gonna play much. They might lose their scholarship, which many schools is year to year and not guaranteed for four years. They might giving their all to football and not getting much out of it from football and damaging their education. And I think one of the big issues in NCAA sport is who's gonna pay for their medical costs and problems after they leave school. And it's often the family. It's often the kids. You know, I think from the Samoan point of view, and all of this is changing, you know, with the globalization and corporatization of sport. But I think, you know, particularly in the 80s, 90s, and so on, when Samoan families stopped asking their sons, what value is there in football? Do you, can you eat that football? To a recognition. That it can get a kid off island, get him and now, through volleyball and softball girls, a college education. And I think that brings not only great respect for the individual, but the family, the ainga, the extended family, the village, the church. and that is a powerful incentive. Now I think to a degree, that can be eroding because of all the money involved in sport. So I think there's tensions. Um, Malia Purcell, who grew up in Western Samoa, then American Samoa, and then Laie, the Mormon community on the North Shore of Oahu, went back to American Samoa and worked in building up the sporting community and life for the government. He had three kids who got complete scholarships to college. Through sport. Two who played football, his daughter who played volleyball. They all graduated. His two sons played professionally. And as he said, there is greater joy and honor when you see them walking across the stage, degree in hand, than suiting up on a Sunday.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, that is the perspective of somebody who's a high talking chief in his Ainga. Uh, very mature and worldly and has seen everything, including a rock. Um, it's tough for kids, particularly kids who grow up in the island, who then end up, you know, at a junior college without a lot of a, much of a support system, or at a four-year school where the pressure is ridiculously intense to handle that and
0: survive. And a lot of them don't yeah. I wanted to to comment on that, and and one of the things that I recognized the first summer that I came back from American Samoa is how similar rural Alabama is to American Samoa, and the the African American football players who come to Alabama to to play. The ones who there's there's a there there are more stories than I can shake a fist at about players who didn't make it. Mm-hmm. Um, who fall on hard times after leaving and not uh, without a degree uh there are also fascinating stories of not just the hits you take on the field but the stress mm-hmm. of being a third stringer on a team like Alabama where you you're a great player, you put all your eggs in this basket, but you actually never get to play, so you never get seen but mm-hmm. what I wanted to ask about. Is the last comment you made about their youth, and I wanna, I wanna read a short quote from from you in the Samoan Paradox chapter. And you're talking about the attitude again, um, the 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 warrior ethos that you mentioned. And this is a quote from a coach that you spoke to. He said, "We revere the warrior. Our attitude is that I'm not afraid of anything." I'm going to conquer whatever comes in my way. And then you say that attitude contributes to a racialized, hyper-masculine identity exploited as a marketing device, but it's part of how Samoans are coming to terms with their place in a changing world. And I wonder if, for those young people, this marketed, uh, this this marketing aspect has negative implications for the culture and for these kids?
2: Well, I mean, if you're being, if being a warrior to you is you know, it's tackling helmet first and not admitting to when you're hurt and perhaps hurting other people as well as yourself in the course of playing, it's, it's a problem. And, you know, I think there has to be a, particularly for football, because it is such a contact sport. You have to be willing on some level to overcome your fears. And fear can be a good thing. You know, it's, it's what allowed somebody like me or you to last as long as we've lasted. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we try to avoid damaging situations. Um, But I think, you know, when you're 18 or 19 or 20, um, and you see all this uh, encouragement, you know, to play like a warrior, to be fierce, um, to be, quote unquote, a man, then I think you're putting yourself at risk. And, you know, one of the tragic moments I had was realizing that in the course of doing interviews with men who had played professionally, who were now in their 30s, and I'm thinking when I'm going and walking with them, that here I am, twice their age and half their size, and I'm having to slow down because they were hobbled physically by Mm -hmm. what they encountered. And what's even scarier is they don't know What lies ahead for them neurologically. They incurred so many subconcussive blows, as well as the more dramatic concussive blows. And that can manifest itself uh, in depression, erratic behavior, uh, substance abuse, and chronic traumatic encephalopathy.
0: uh, Right. Degeneration later in life. I think – and that has gotten – that's been in the news. The movie Concussion was profound, and and I'll admit I felt guilty going back to watch football afterward. Um, This reminds me, though, of in the recent SEC championship game, Tuatonga Vailoa got a high ankle sprain in the very first drive, stayed in the rest of the game until the end, and then finally came out after someone else stepped on his other ankle. And it turned out he needed surgery, right? So on the one hand, everyone was celebrating him for playing on this injury. I will admit that I was I was like, he doesn't deserve the Heisman if he can't continue and play through that and do well, which is on me, right? Maybe I'm buying into this mythology. Um, and I will say that the, 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 the praise heaped on Jalen Hurts for graduating and the celebration of these athletes when they come back and graduate is extremely validating. But what I wanted to, to, to point out or ask or, or mention is when they talk about the surgery that both of our quarterbacks, Hurts and Tonga-Vailoa, got this season for high ankle sprains, other players, I think Jonah Williams said, this is something we all get. Every single one of us has had this surgery. I don't know anyone who has had high ankle sprain surgery. This is not normal for me. And it does concern me that all of these athletes are basically bionic in some sense. And I, and that, I don't really mean that. But what I mean to say is it sounds like surgery is such a common thing aspect of these college athletes' lives that should we be concerned?
2: Well, sure. I mean, look at some of the sports of the past, um, and the damage they've caused dog fighting, Mm -hmm. boxing, and now football. Um, and I think football is really at an existential crossroads because of neurological damage. Um, you know, but I remember a number of years ago, so it's almost 20 years ago, I had a wonderful student in an honors college sport on sport who was uh, captain of the gymnastics team. And this was well before we knew about the damage of concussions and CTE in football. But we did know about the damaged um, appendages and the broken bones and the arthritic conditions that would plague people and she said well you know every sport has that sort of potential to damage the body and she said what about yourself and i run and here i am you know when we're done i'll stretch and i'll go for a run and yet you know repetitive stress i mean i'm sure that at some point my body will break down by devoting so much of my life on a steady basis to something I love. Mm-hmm. And I've already had surgery, and ibuprofen is one of my basic food groups. Um, <laughs> you no, know, it's... Sport is that... It's, it's double-edged. I mean, we, there are tremendous highs and tremendously wonderful aspects of exercise and training and the discipline the camaraderie of the team and the excitement of it and yet we do pay a price for it I feel this so acutely
1: (laughs) so as I told you I played rugby but I'm a power lifter more or less now Uh, and this past summer I had kind of a breakout summer where I added 50 pounds to my squat in three months but now I've got shoulder issues now I have knee issues and, you know, people ask why in the world do you do this? And I'm like, well, I love it, but I would also do it again, even knowing the pain that I'm in now. And, you know, I'm I'm struggling to lift weights. I shouldn't struggle, uh, but I would totally do it again uh, because it is that meaningful to me as a person and how I function. So I definitely, but I also know the risks. That's the thing is that's the one concern I have when it comes to youth football and even collegiate, because I'm not necessarily, I'm not convinced that college players really do know those long-term health issues that might come along with it. Um, youth football, definitely not, but that's where it worries me uh, more than anything else is that I don't think that the education is really there is they think they're young and they'll live forever and they're indestructible <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. Um, you know, I think that um, the, the tipping point that got reached a few years ago about concussions has caused reform and changes for the good in Pop Warner and youth football, um, But they're not enough. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that while the numbers of tackle football participants, high school and below is dropping, flag football, lacrosse <laughs> and other activities um, which can have their injuries are rising.
0: Yeah, I um, grew up playing soccer and now I coach my, my sons and I coach high school soccer and I'm, I not only, one I want to say ibuprofen is one of my food groups is, is the name of our, it's got to be the name of this episode and I relate to that, that, I relate to that profoundly.
1: (laughs) Ibuprofen and icing down. (laughs) Yeah,
0: but you know, I mean, I, I, I I, want to, I want to, reinforce the value because we we do do these things and i coach kids and i see uh the team building value and the self-esteem value and yet i still get injured even as a coach because it's so fun and i want to play with them and i i can't move that way anymore um but but i i agree i agree with with everything you're saying and think it's 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 worth noting uh the tremendous value um that also needs to be, that, that has been demonstrated, needs to be, to, that, we need, and that we need to parse um, from some of these, these negatives. Um, I guess we could go on and on, but I wanna, I wanna let you get to your run, but I wanna find out what you're doing next. What, what's the next project on your horizon?
2: I have been working on a couple of uh, collaborations uh, with colleagues who are close friends from the history department at Pitt. Uh, one is a history of Pittsburgh with Ted Muller. Uh, the other is a biography of a man named Mal Good with Leon Um Pittsburgh, don't really need to explain why a history of a city like Pittsburgh. Um, Mal Good was the grandson of slaves, uh, the son of a steelworker at the Homestead Steelworks in Pittsburgh, born in 1908, who started working in the mills while he was in high school in Homestead, while he was at the University of Pittsburgh, and afterwards. Later on, he became involved with um, the YMCA, the Housing Authority, and the Pittsburgh Courier newspaper, the Black Paper, And he started doing radio commentaries and became the voice of civil rights in Pittsburgh. In 1962, when he was 54 years old, he was hired by ABC News and became the first African-American national television correspondent, Mm. in part because of his friend, Jackie Robinson. Mm. And Leanne and I are are working on that biography.
0: Wonderful. That That sounds sounds fascinating.
1: Yeah. Yeah, sounds good.
0: Well, how can people get a hold of you or find you on the internet to learn more about your work? Uh, well, I succumbed to social media and created a website,
2: uh, <laughs> Um So it's easy enough to find me. There's contact information. Also, if you just you know, Google my name and University of Pittsburgh, uh, you can also get my email address and my phone number um, and information about the book.
0: Wonderful. Well, we want to thank you so much for being on the Sausage of Science. I am Chris, and you can find me on Twitter at Chris underscore L-Y.
1: And I am Kara, and I wanted to say Rob, I very much enjoyed your book. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Kara
0: Akebach. And we encourage oh, everyone to uh, like the podcast, to follow the subscribe. podcast, to subscribe, rate, mm-hmm. do all of the things. And Rob Yeah, I did
2: you ever... wanted to thank you for this opportunity to talk. Um, but I really want to thank you guys for what you're doing in places like American Samoa in terms of health and obesity and diet and exercise. Um, you know, it's fun and a privilege to write a book like this. Uh, but the work you and people like uh, Nikki Haley and uh, Steve McGarvey are doing is really critical, and I just wanted to applaud that.
0: Uh, I I appreciate it, and I'm going to tweet Nikki as soon as we get off and tell her you said that. I'm sure she (laughs) will appreciate that as well. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, and thank you all for listening.
2: You're welcome, guys.
0: Bye-bye.
1: Thanks, Rob.